0: with Dr. Frank Turek. Is your God too small? J.B. Phillips, a number of years ago, wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. What did he mean by that? We're going to get into it today. I'm not really going to go over his book per se, but I have some thoughts on this issue. In fact, I think your God is too small if, number one, you can't understand why Jesus is the only way. Number two you think God agrees with you on all moral issues. And number three, you can't imagine why God would let bad things happen especially to you. Your God is too small if you can't understand why Jesus is the only way. If you think God agrees with you on all moral issues and you can't imagine why God would let bad things happen especially to you. Why am I saying that? Well, let me talk about Jesus being the only way. When I got out of college, I went right into the Navy. I was a Naval ROTC student. And so I went into Naval Aviation. I was down in Pensacola, Florida, doing training to become a navigator in aviation in the Navy. And then I moved on to Sacramento, California for more training. And along the way, I met the son of a Methodist minister. And I always knew, I always knew there had to be a God. I just didn't know who Jesus was. And I had a lot of questions for this Methodist minister. So one Sunday morning in March of 1985, I was sitting in my apartment with my roommate who happened to be the son of a Methodist minister. And we had started going to church together and I had a lot of questions for him. And uh, that morning I remember asking him, Mark, do you really think Jesus is the only way? I mean, that really seems kind of narrow. And he said, well, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's all he did. He gave me a Bible verse. He didn't try and, and logically tell me why or philosophically tell me why or theologically tell me why Jesus was the only way. He just quoted a Bible verse and said, I believe it. I said, Mark, I think that's really narrow. I asked him a couple other questions. And then finally, we looked, I looked down at my watch and I said, well, if we're going to go to church, we better get going. And. We didn't know where the church was. It was just the first time we were going. We were going to a place called Sunrise Church, and we hadn't been there. So we got in my car, and uh, we're about to head down to the highway, Highway 50 there in Sacramento. And I'm driving, and uh, Mark says, I think Sunrise Avenue, where this church was, is west. And I said, Mark, I think it's east. Now, keep in mind, we're both being trained as navigators. <laughs> so... Since I'm driving, I said, Mark, we're going east. So we get on Highway 50. We start heading east. We're driving for like 10 minutes. No sign of Sunrise Avenue. Mark looks over at me and he goes, see, I told you it was the other way. I said, I'm going to keep driving. In fact, a man would rather drive 25,000 miles around the earth than admit he was wrong when it comes to direction. So I just keep driving. I'm driving, driving, driving. A few minutes later, I see the sign, Sunrise Avenue. I go, see? So we pull off. We see the church. We get into the parking lot and it is, it's full. Nobody's coming or going. We're obviously late. As we're walking in the door, there's a guy coming out. I said, hey, what time does service start? He said, 10. I look at my watch. It's 10.30. We walk in and we sit down. The pastor's in the middle of his sermon. It's in one of those gyms where there's a basketball hoop on each side, you know, and he's standing uh, really what would be the side of the court. And he's on a little riser, and all he has is his Bible. And we just kind of slip in, and we sit down. He's right in the middle of the sermon. Anyway, two minutes into the sermon that we start seeing, two minutes after we sit down, he says, and then Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Mark, my roommate, gives me a little elbow. I go, yeah, I got it. And then he goes, And some people think that's narrow. And so Mark gives me another elbow and he said, but you know, the truth is narrow. He said, if I want to call my friend John here in the front row, I got to dial seven numbers in the exact order. If I don't dial those numbers in the exact order, I don't get John. I get a wrong number. He said, the truth by definition is narrow. Now, I didn't become a Christian that day. I didn't have all my questions answered. In fact, I still don't have all my questions answered. But I knew something was going on here. Why? Because out of the 31,000 verses in the Bible, this guy is speaking of the verse we were talking about that morning, and we didn't know where the church was. We didn't know what time it started. We didn't even know who he was. And we get there, and two minutes later, he's talking about this verse. I said, something must be going on here. So I started to do some research, and I got Josh McDowell books, Evidence Demands a Verdict, and More Than a Carpenter, and ultimately became a Christian just a few months later. So we ought to deal with the question, though, how can Jesus be the only way? I think your God is too small if you can't understand why he is the only way. You might be thinking to yourself, wait, Frank, Uh, wouldn't God be bigger if he allowed more ways? No. Why? Well, let's get into it. First of all, as I say, I didn't have all my questions answered that morning, but I started to do some research and Let me give you some thoughts I have on this issue. How can Jesus be the only way? First of all, let me point out that every religious worldview, or at least most of them, believe that they are the only way. (laughs) In other words, there's many only ways. Christianity, of course, believes that you have a choice, that you can go to heaven or hell. And as John says in 1 John 5, he says, He who does not have the Son does not have life, so basically salvation is only through Jesus and salvation is by grace. So you do have a choice, you can either be with God in heaven or you could be separated from God in hell and if you don't want to trust in Jesus, that's fine. God will not force you into heaven against your will. You'll be separated from God in hell because you don't want him now, you're not going to want him in eternity. Islam is also very exclusive. It also believes you have ha- you have a choice and it's either paradise or hellfire. Uh, According to to, uh, the Quran, Surah 588, unbelievers will be inmates of hellfire. So salvation isn't by grace here. It's by works or jihad. The only way you can ensure you're going to be saved in Islam is to die in jihad. Otherwise, it's totally up to Allah whether your good works outweigh your bad works. But Islam, like Christianity, is exclusive. It believes there's only one way. It's through good works and becoming a Muslim, whereas Christianity is it's not good works. It's just accepting Christ as your savior. By the way, Hindus are exclusive too. They don't think you have a choice. They think everyone is subject to the law of karma and trapped in reincarnations or ultimate absorption into Brahman. Everyone believes that, uh, or every, every Hindu or most Hindus believe you really don't have a choice. You're just subject to the law of karma. Now, obviously, the, the your behavior will determine where you wind up in the next life. So you have a choice in that respect, but it's exclusive. It's saying this is the truth. Buddhism, same thing. You don't have a choice. Everyone's subject to the law of karma and trapped in reincarnations, or until you're ultimately extinct, which is what they call nirvana. Now, by the way, it would seem to me that these Eastern worldviews, Hinduism and Buddhism, would require a theistic God in order to work. Why? First of all, you would need a moral law to say, well, are you doing really good or are you doing really badly? That requires a moral law and that requires a moral, moral lawgiver. That requires God, his nature to say, this is good and this is bad. Secondly, you would need somebody like God in order to know who does what and then have the power to put them in the next life. I mean, how, how is this reincarnation thing happening? Unless there's a mind behind it, whom deci- who decides, okay, you were good in this life, and so you're going to be better in the next life, and you weren't so good in this life, so you're going to suffer in the following life. You would need a being like God in order to pull that off. No extra charge for that. Atheism doesn't think you have a choice either. Why? It's exclusive. Everyone will cease to exist. And pluralism, the idea that everybody goes to heaven, that's compulsory heaven for everyone. You don't have a choice there either all of these viewpoints are exclusive christianity is exclusive islam is exclusive hinduism buddhism atheism pluralism they're all exclusive they all think they are the only way the only question is are any of these right maybe none of them are right we'll get to it right after the break you're listening to i don't have enough faith to be an atheist with frank turek on the american family radio network we're back in two minutes don't go anywhere Is your God too small, ladies and gentlemen? That's the topic we're talking about it we're talking about today here on I don't have enough faith to be an atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. And at the top of the program I said, look, your God is too small if you can't understand why Jesus is the only way. Or why you think that God agrees with all your moral issues. He agrees with you on everything. Your God's too small. Or your God's too small if you can't imagine why God would let bad, thing ha- bad things happen, and especially bad things happen to you. And so we've been talking about why, G- why Jesus is the only way, and I pointed out that just about every other religious worldview believes that they are the only way. Now, the Baha'is think it doesn't matter which way you come in, you're going to get to God. The problem is they think they're right, too. They think that everybody, anybody who disagrees with them is wrong. So they're still exclusive in that regard. But look, sometimes there's only one way to get something done. Like, for example, there was only one way we were going to kick the Nazis uh, out of France, and that was to land at Normandy or land on D-Day on the on the French mainland. If we didn't do that, we probably never would have gotten, at least not in the near term. We never would have gotten the Nazis out of France, and then ultimately won the war. Sometimes there's only one way out of a building. There were heroes that went into the Twin Towers on 9-11, and they told people this is the one way out. You want to take another staircase It's already got debris in it? Be my guest, but you're not going to get out. This is the only one way to get out. Follow me. Sometimes there's only one way to save your, your friends. Petty Officer Michael Monsor, the United States Navy SEAL that dove on a grenade on September 29, 2006, had only one way he could save his friends. The grenade was right there in front of all three of them. And he didn't have time to throw it back. He could have saved himself by leaping through a doorway behind him. But if he had done that, his two Navy SEAL teammates lying on the roof would have died. So his one way to save them was to jump on the grenade himself. Of course, Jesus metaphorically did the same thing for us. There was one way that a perfectly just God can allow unjust people to go unpunished, and that is he takes the punishment on himself. That's why Jesus is the only way. That's why Jesus is the one way. And Paul unpacks this in the great book of Romans. We're going through the Romans right now uh, on our online course. It's just my favorite book, I think, in the entire Bible. It's so theologically rich. But Paul says in Romans 3.26 that God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why is Jesus the only way? Because God is so infinitely just that he can't allow sin to go unpunished. So if he wants to allow sinners to go unpunished, what does he do? He takes the punishment on himself. That way, he's just and the justifier. He remains just because he punishes sin and he's the justifier of sinners by saving us and or saving us from the punishment that we actually deserve, because he takes it on himself. So that's why Jesus is the only way. Now, when you bring this topic up, of course, people are going to say, well, what about those that have never heard? Now, notice, by the way, this is a moral question. And we unpacked this, I think, about six months ago on a program, uh, somewhere around October, November. You can go back on our app, the Cross-Examined app, and uh, look up the program. It Is titled, I think, What About Those That Have Never Heard? So we're going to more depth there. I'm going to give you a brief answer here. Notice this is a moral question. Why do I say it's a moral question? Because it's somehow implying that God would be immoral if he doesn't get his gospel to everyone. And so it seems to shrink the love of God. Because if there are people out there who have never heard, then at least theoretically, if they had heard, maybe they would have believed and they would have been saved. But They didn't hear, so they're they're lost, according to Christianity. But first, let me point out that there is no one out there that's never heard. Everyone has heard of a moral creator through creation and conscience. Everybody knows there's a creator, and everyone knows he's moral. You don't need the Bible to know that. In fact, the Bible even teaches you don't need the Bible to know that. Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 talk about that. His invisible qualities are clearly seen so that men are without excuse, and That the gentiles are not of the law of the law written on their hearts everybody intuitively knows right and wrong and they know that there's a creator who has established right and wrong and they also know that they haven't lived up to it now so there's no one out there who's never heard of god everyone there's many people out there who have never heard of jesus but there's no one out there who has never heard of god now what does the bible teach the bible teaches that if people seek god through the light they have and that's natural revelation or general revelation That's the information you have about God without any reference to scripture. You get it through nature. You get it through conscience. The Bible says that if if you seek God, he will get you the light you need in order to be saved. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So if you take a step toward the light that you already have, God will get you more information so you can be saved. It may come through a missionary. It It may come through a radio broadcast like this one, or a podcast. It may come through a dream or a vision. If you're a Muslim in a far-off land and you're truly seeking God, there's been many reports from many Muslims saying, Jesus appeared to me in a dream or a vision. God will get you what you need in order to be saved. And so nobody is going to wind up in a place in the afterlife that they don't deserve. Because God is infinitely loving and infinitely just, by definition, in the afterlife, no one's going to say, God, I got a raw deal here. If you only gave me more information, I would have become a Christian. God knows that's not the case. In fact, God wants people to be saved more than we do. And here's one thing an infinitely just God can't do, or let me say an infinitely powerful God can't do. He can't do contradictory things. He can't force free creatures to love him. And in order to love anyone, you need to have freedom. So God gives us the free will to love him, but also the free will to reject him. And as I said earlier, if you don't want God now, you're not going to want him in eternity. So he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Also, you might, one, one answer to this seeming problem here about those that have never heard is this. It could be that God has so ordered the world so that those who never hear the gospel wouldn't have believed it anyway, right? I mean, that's possible. We know people out there who uh, hear the gospel and don't believe it. In fact, you might be listening to me right now. You've heard the gospel but you don't believe it. But it could be that those that never hear the gospel wouldn't have believed it anyway. And I get this from the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17 when he's talking to the Athenians, who are not Christians, obviously. He says this in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, from one man, God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And then he goes on on to say that in him, in Jesus, we live and move and have our being. Notice he's saying here that, it, that God has determined the time set where people should live, the exact places where they should live. He did this so that people would seek out him and reach out for him and find him. In other words, it seems that God has so preordained the universe that those that want to hear the gospel will, it, will hear the gospel, and those that don't want to hear the gospel will not hear it. That's certainly possible. It seems to be what Paul is saying here. Because, look, well, let me ask you guys a question. I may have asked you this question before on this podcast, but I want to ask you right now, and this is just if you're a Christian. Christian, I want you to think of somebody you know who's not a Christian whom you'd like to be a Christian. A friend, relative, somebody like that. Look, if you're with that person right now, don't point at them. Don't look at them, okay? But (laughs) let me ask you this about the person you're thinking of, the non-Christian whom you'd like to be a Christian. Is the person you're thinking of on a relentless pursuit of truth? In other words, they want to know if Christianity is true or not, or are they apathetic or maybe even hostile to Christianity? What do you think? Do they want to know the truth or are they apathetic or hostile? I was just at a great church in Fort Worth last weekend and I asked that question to about 1500 people. When I asked, how many people that you're thinking of right now uh, or the person you're thinking of right now, are they on a relentless pursuit of truth? The person you're thinking of right now, how many hands you think went up of the 1500 people? Zero. Zip. Nada. When I asked is the person you're thinking of apathetic or hostile, 1,500 hands went up. Why? Because most people are looking for God like a criminal's looking for a cop. They're not interested. They don't want there to be a God. They're not on a truth quest. They're on a happiness quest. And they're just going to believe whatever they think is going to make them happy. Here's the problem. You can make yourself happy over the short term doing a lot of fun things, but over the long term, it's a disaster. And anyone listening to me right now who's over 40 knows what I'm talking about because many of us have tried it ourselves. The only way to get true contentment, certainly in the next life, but even here, is to go straight through truth. And Jesus is the truth. So people who don't seek out Jesus may never hear about him. Actually, that lessens their responsibility. Because to whom much is given, much will be required. So. Jesus is the only way, because that's the only way God can remain just and be the justifier. And those that don't want to believe in him, that don't want to trust in him, won't be burdened with being in his presence for all eternity. They'll be separated from him. That's what hell is. So Jesus is the only way, and that's because God is bigger than you think. You say, what do you mean by that, Frank? What do you mean God is bigger than you think? Well, I'm going to get to that right after the break. Before I do, for those of you who have been listening to this podcast for quite a while, uh, you know we cover a lot of issues here. A lot of them are apologetic issues. Some of them are cultural issues. And much of what I've learned about these issues, I learned at Southern Evangelical Seminary, ses.edu. I'm a graduate of SES. It's here in Charlotte, but it doesn't matter where it is now because everything's online. COVID has really pushed everything online. So if you really want to learn good evidence for the faith and you want to learn philosophy and you want to learn theology, you want to learn apologetics, there's probably no better place to go than SES. SES.edu, you can take it all online. So check it out. Just go there. Check out SES.edu. Again, they're based in Charlotte, but it doesn't matter where, where they're based now because everything's done via Zoom. So SES.edu. I also want to mention we've got a brand new online course coming up. I'm teaching through Romans right now and by the way you can take that course anytime you want in the self-paced version because uh it's it's you going through it whenever you want but there's a new course coming up on biblical sexuality that you can be a part of live with sean mcdowell just go to crossexamine.org and click on online courses you'll see it there it's coming up just in a week or two and uh, we'll be back in just two minutes i'm frank turek don't go anywhere Your God is too small if you can't understand why Jesus is the only way. And if you think God agrees with you on all moral issues, your God is too small. Now, why do I say that? I say that because God is beyond us morally than what we could ever imagine. And in order to explain this, We have to go to the Ark of the Covenant. You know the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, that Ark of the Covenant. The Raiders of the Lost Ark. You mean they made a movie out of that? Yes, yes, yes. That Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. The Indiana Jones Ark of the Covenant. That's in the Bible? Yeah, dude, it's in the Bible. Yeah. That came from the Bible, ladies and gentlemen, the Ark of the Covenant. I bet you didn't know that. All right. Well, what happened with the Ark of the Covenant that um, is is really disturbing? (laughs) Other than the fact that the Ark of the Covenant they carry into battle, and of course, they would win every battle with that, and that seemed to be a little bit odd. But there's an event that occurred in 2 Samuel 6 that will help us understand how God is morally different than we are. And uh, if you would, if you got a Bible, go to Second Samuel chapter 6, because we're going to take a look at this. Something dramatic happened in 2 Samuel chapter 6 when David is trying to transport the Ark of the Covenant back toward Jerusalem. And as you know, they used to have to transport the Ark by putting poles through it. And they would carry the Ark, and only certain people could carry the Ark, by touching or holding on to these poles. They were not permitted to touch the Ark. The Ark was holy, and holy means separate. So you couldn't touch the Ark without dying. The Ark was a holy object. You know the Ten Commandments were in the Ark, and so they couldn't touch the Ark. So they would carry this Ark when they transport it very carefully by putting poles through it, And so that way they could transport it without actually touching it. Well, David, for some reason, decided that he was going to transport this uh, this Ark on the back of oxen rather than transport it in the proper way by priests carrying it through these poles. And it Kind of reminds me of what happens when a couple of guys decide they're going to transport a mattress, you know, and they're going to put it on their, you know, their 1985 Buick Electra and they're going to put the mattress on there maybe tie it off with a little rope. But as they're driving, you know, they're going to have their hand out the window holding the mattress like, I got this, man. I got this. Don't worry. This mattress is going to stay on the car because my hand's holding it up. Now that's not, it's holding it to the roof. That's not obviously the proper way to transport a mattress, and it's not the proper way to transport an ark by putting it on the back of oxen, but David does it anyway. And here's what happens. You know, they're making sure it doesn't fall, and it says, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, one of the guys who was sort of the custodian or one of the watchers of the ark, his name is Uzzah, He's walking along with the ark, and when it came to the fleshing four of Nakon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then, David became angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. And Perez Uzzah means outbreak against Uzzah. So David's all annoyed because Uzzah was just trying to stop the ark from falling in the mud. So he reaches out his hand to stop it and God strikes him dead. And David is upset. He's angry. Now, does seem a little bit extreme, doesn't it? The guy's just trying to prevent the ark, the holy ark of God from falling in the mud and getting defiled. Why does God strike Uzzah dead for trying to prevent that? Despite the fact, obviously, they weren't transporting it rightly, you got to give the guy a little grace, right? No, you don't. God didn't. How do we explain this? Well, for this, we have to go to Isaiah chapter 55, to a famous passage we've probably all quoted. And here is the passage. Isaiah 55 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And this is supposed to mean that, you know, God works in mysterious ways. We can't explain why this happened. And whenever we see something that we don't quite understand, we normally quote this verse. For God's thoughts, or for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, God says my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. In other words, it's appeal to mystery here. That's what Isaiah 55 is all about. According to. To those of us who quote it this way but that's not what isaiah 55 is all about as i've said before there are no verses in the bible you don't just pull verses out of context and make them say what you want them to say now let me start off by saying it is true that god's thoughts are higher than our thoughts that there are mysteries that we don't understand the secret things are of the lord he says in deuteronomy He says the same kind of thing at the end of Romans chapter 11. But that's not what this passage is talking about. And in order to discover that, you got to know the context here of Isaiah. Remember, Isaiah 53 is the great suffering servant passage. And this is just a couple of chapters later, where Isaiah is basically telling his followers to turn back to the Lord. The suffering servant has suffered for us. And we ought to turn our hearts to the Lord. We ought to repent. So you just can't take that verse and read it in isolation. Go up a couple of verses earlier and see what what he's talking about to understand what Isaiah means by my thoughts and your thoughts and your ways and my ways. If you go up just a couple of verses, again, we're in Isaiah chapter 55. Here's what he says, seek the Lord while he may be found, call on him while he is near, let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Notice he's going to freely pardon. Why? The suffering servants already paid for the sins. God can pardon. This is why Jesus is the only way. He's the only way because only God if he's just can allow sin to go unpunished if he punishes an innocent substitute in our place and that is the suffering servant in any event notice whose ways he's talking about let me read it again this is just before the passage and i'm going to read the whole thing through now and see if you can see the context seek the lord while he may be found call on him while he is near let the wicked forsake their ways whose ways is he talking about the wicked and lay and the unrighteous their thoughts let them turn to the lord and he will have mercy on them and to our god for he will freely pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are your ways my ways whose thoughts is he talking about he's talking about my thoughts meaning god's thoughts are not your thoughts he's not talking logic here he's talking morality Whose thoughts? The wicked thoughts. He just got done talking about let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. So, wicked ways, unrighteous thoughts. So, God's thoughts are not unrighteous thoughts. Neither are your ways, meaning the wicked ways, my ways, God's ways. So, Isaiah here, and really God through Isaiah, is making the point. That God's moral thoughts and God's moral ways are higher than our unrighteous thoughts and our wicked ways. He's not saying, although it's true, he's not saying that you don't know what I know. It's not a logical point or a point about knowledge, it's a point about morality. And then here's the key phrase. As high are, as as easy for me to say, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my moral ways higher than your wicked ways and my moral thoughts higher than your unrighteous thoughts. Now, with that in mind, we need to ask the question, how much higher Are God's thoughts moral thoughts than our moral thoughts? He says, as the heavens are higher than the earth. Well, how high are the heavens above the earth? Do you know that the average distance between stars in our galaxy is 30 trillion miles? And all that distance, by the way, is necessary for us to exist here on Earth. 30 trillion miles is one of those aspects or factors or attributes of our universe that appear to be fine-tuned. 30 trillion miles. All that distance is necessary. This is just in our galaxy. Now, how far is 30 trillion miles? Far. It would take you at least two tanks of gas in a Toyota Prius to go 30 trillion miles. That is if the gas pedal doesn't stick. Anyway, To give you an idea of 30 trillion miles, if you could get in the space shuttle, which used to orbit the Earth at five miles per second, five miles per second, 18,000 or so miles an hour, if you could get in the space shuttle, and if you could get in the space shuttle to try and travel from our star, the sun, to another star in our galaxy, an average distance away, 30 trillion miles, how long do you think it would take you if you could go five miles a second? It would take you over 200,000 years. That means if you got in the space shuttle at the time of Christ and started traveling from our star, the sun, to another star in our galaxy, this is not outside our galaxy, this is a star inside our galaxy, you started traveling to a star inside our galaxy an average distance away, you've been going five miles a second for 2,000 years. You would be less than one hundredth of the way there right now. That's how high the heavens are above the earth. And those are just between two stars in our galaxy. That's not between all the stars in our galaxy. How many stars are there in our galaxy? We'll talk about it right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Our website is crossexamined.org that's crossexamined with a D on the end of it .org and we're back, Lord willing, in just two minutes. Don't go do anywhere. In addition to taking classes at Southern Evangelical Seminary, ses.edu, or classes through crossexamine.org, click on crossexamine.org and then online courses, you'll see them there. If you really want to learn how to do this in a very hands on way, How to present evidence for Christianity and then answer questions, particularly hostile questions. You ought to come to the Cross-Examine Instructor Academy, CIA, this year. It's going to be out at our friend's church, the great Jack Hibbs. His church is called Calvary Chapel Chino Hills in Chino Hills, California, just a little bit east of Los Angeles. And it's going to be, I want to say, the first or second week of August. I don't have the dates in front of me right here. But if you go to our website, crossexamine.org, you'll see the dates there. It's uh, in August uh, here in 2021. You need to apply quickly because we only take 50 or 60 people. And the reason for that is, is because we not only present to you, you present to us. So this is a hands-on workshop on how you can present the evidence for Christianity better and uh, uh Jorge tells me it's uh thank you, it is uh August 12th to the 14th. So that's a Thursday through a Saturday all day. We go dawn to dusk almost, at least some of the days. And uh it is an amazing, I think it's gonna be our fifth, fourteenth, or fifteenth year of doing it. Greg Kokel will join us. Jorge Gill, Jay Warner Wallace, Natasha Crane, Alisa Childers, Brett Kunkel, Richard Howe. I'm leaving somebody out, but <laughs> We've got such a great team. You go to our website, crossexamined.org, you'll see it there. Sean McDowell will also be a part of it, and he's also teaching a course for us here shortly on biblical sexuality. Check all that out at crossexamined.org. All right, we're talking about the fact that your God is too small if you think Jesus can't be the only way, and if you think that your moral opinions, that God agrees with all of them, Because he doesn't. Why? Because he's set apart. He's holy. How holy is he? How much different are his ways higher than our ways? He said it in Isaiah chapter 55 As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your moral ways, and my thoughts higher than your wicked thoughts, says God. And we said just before the break, that it would take you over 200,000 years to go between just two stars in our galaxy if you could go five miles a second. That's how long it would take you to traverse 30 trillion miles at five miles a second. That was space shuttle orbit speed, five miles per second. Well, how much higher are the heavens than the earth? How many stars are there in our galaxy? How many stars are there in the entire universe? Well, there's billions of galaxies. There's billions of galaxies, And there's billions of stars in our one galaxy. But folks at the University of Hawaii recently did some research. And here is their estimate for the number of stars in our universe. Are you ready? The number of stars in our universe are about equivalent to the number of sand grains on all the beaches on all the Earth times 100,000. What? Yeah. Try and get your mind around that. The number of stars in the universe are about equivalent to the number of sand grains on 100,000 Earths. Now you know why the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. Now you know what God means when he says, as the heavens are higher than the earth so is my morality higher than your morality so are my pure thoughts higher than your wicked thoughts that's the word picture you need to think of i can i can't comprehend that it's beyond comprehension comprehension now ladies and gentlemen i don't ever want to hear any of you use the word awesome ever again unless you're referring to the universe or god because if If you don't reserve the word awesome for the universe or God, what other word is there? Awesome shirt, dude. Awesome shot, dude. Wow, what an awesome TikTok video. No. What's awesome is a God who created and sustains stars on 100,000 Earths or stars equivalent to sand grains on 100,000 Earths. The God that created and sustains all that is the same God whose divine nature is the divine nature that created and sustains all that, and the divine nature that is what we call good, and any deviation from that nature is what we would call evil. So if you think that God agrees with you on everything morally, you don't understand who God is. And this is the lie of progressive Christianity, which, as I've said before, is not progressive, and it's not Christianity. Because whenever you're disagreeing with God, you're not being progressive. You're being regressive. And whenever you're disagreeing with Jesus, you're not being a Christian. You're being a non-Christian. So stop calling yourself a progressive Christian because you're not. You're not progressing, and you're not Christian when you're disagreeing with God or when you're disagreeing with Jesus. So when Uzzah put his hand out to stop the ark from falling, he didn't realize that his hand was more wicked and more filthy than the dirt. Do you know that the dirt does what God tells it to do? But you don't. The dirt is controlled by natural forces that God put into place and sustains. And the dirt does what he wants it to do. But we don't. Uzzah thought he was holier than the dirt. He isn't. He wasn't. Neither are we. But there's a way out. And that way out is through Jesus. You say, well, Frank, look, I'm a good person. No, you're not. Neither am I. Oh, you might be good compared to somebody that you can think of who's bad. Like, oh, Frank, I haven't murdered anyone. Frank, I haven't raped anyone. You know, we're only good by using the standards of bad people. Oh, sure, maybe you're better than them, but you're not good because you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short. Even if we could live a perfect life from here on out, that doesn't change the fact that we're already guilty of sin. In fact, Jesus had a teaching regarding people claiming to be good. Do You remember when he met with the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler said, good teacher, and Jesus stopped him. He said, why do you call me good? There is none good but God alone. So if you're claiming to be good, You're either lying or you're claiming to be God, because there's none good but God alone. That's what Jesus said. In fact, he was getting the rich young ruler to realize the implications of calling Jesus good. It meant he was basically calling Jesus God, because that's who Jesus was. There is none good but God alone. He wasn't denying that he was good. He was just claiming there is none good but God alone, i.e., I am God. So, anyone who claims they're a good person is disagreeing with Jesus, and it's never a good place to be. Disagreeing with Jesus, that is. So, there is none good. There is none good but God. So, no, I'm not good. You're not good. We're only good when we compare ourselves to people who are worse, but that doesn't mean we're good. (laughs) It just means we may be better than somebody else. And there's got to be a standard beyond us by which we could even make such a judgment that well i'm better than so-and-so as c.s lewis famously said i'm paraphrasing he said the moment you say that one set of moral ideas can be better than another you are in fact measuring them by a standard outside of both of those ideas but the standard that measures two things can't be one of the two things you're measuring in other words there has to be a real morality outside of our own ideas of what morality is in order to say, well, I I behave better than somebody else, there has to be an ex- a standard external to both of us. In order to say that Mother Teresa was better than Hitler, you have to have a standard outside of Mother Teresa and Hitler to say Mother Teresa was better. We're not saying Mother Teresa was perfect. Mother Teresa, the Catholic nun who served the poor most of her life in Calcutta, Hitler, the murderous World War II dictator who murdered at least six million Jews. We're saying that Mother Teresa was better than Hitler because we know there's a standard beyond both of them. And that standard is God's nature. And that standard is a lot more moral than we think. It's higher than the heavens are above the earth. So your God is too small if you think he agrees with you on everything. I'm reminded of what Abraham Lincoln said during the Civil War. Someone asked Lincoln, Do you think God is on our side? And Lincoln said, That's not the question. The question we ought to be asking, Are we on God's side? Yeah. God is not on your side. Hopefully, you're on God's side because God is the standard. We're not. As high as the heavens are above the earth, are my thoughts higher than your thoughts? You know what else he said? In Psalm 103, he said, For as high. As the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Yes, God is so infinitely just that we're unholy compared to him. But he's also so infinitely loving that he has removed our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west because he loves us that much as well. And he's done that, he's removed our transgressions through Christ. So by trusting in him, you not only have your sins forgiven, but you're given his righteousness. So if you don't understand how awesome, truly awesome God is, you might not understand why Jesus is the only way. You might not understand that Jesus might not agree with you or God might not agree with you on everything. because don't understand the greatness and awesomeness of God. All right, friends, great being with you. I hope this was helpful. Lord willing, we'll see you again next week. Check out our website, crossexamined.org, crossexamined with a D on the end of it.org. And don't forget to download our free app, Two Words in the App Store, crossexamined. Lord willing, see you next week. God bless.